It is not an easy thing to handle greatness. There are a large number of temptations as well as responsibilities that are associated with greatness. The focus of our text this morning is David's increasing in greatness. The key verse is 2 Samuel 5, verse 10, which reads, And David became greater and greater, for the Lord of hosts was with him. David became greater and greater. He was increasing in greatness. We find in this passage that there are a series of snapshots that give us a picture of the various ways in which David is increasing in greatness. These snapshots cover a rather lengthy period of time in David's reign. For example, if you look at verses 13 to 16, we know that those marriages and births could not have happened overnight, but it, are, but it represents an extended period of time in David's reign. So what we have this morning is an overview, uh, a flyover of David's kingdom with the emphasis on the progression of David growing greater and greater and greater. So as we look at this passage this morning, we are going to consider it under three different heads. First, the manifestation of David's greatness. Secondly, the source of David's greatness. And then thirdly, the purpose for David's greatness. So we begin by looking at the manifestation of David's greatness, the various ways in which David was growing greater and greater. The first we see that David became greater and greater as seen in the conquering of Jerusalem. The Jebusites viewed themselves as living in an impenetrable city. You notice in verse 6, it reads, And the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off, thinking David cannot come in here. Evidently, David and his troops came against that city and demanded that they surrender to him. Well, they weren't going to do any such thing. They refused to surrender. In fact, they taunted David instead and said, We aren't afraid of you. We can put blind and lame people out there to defend us and we'll still be safe. Well, the Jebusites had a lot of reason for confidence. They had been a real thorn in the flesh for the Israelites for an extended period of time. Up until this point in their history, the Israelites had never been able to occupy the city of Jebus, which came to be known as Jerusalem. In the time of Joshua, in Joshua chapter 15, verse 63, when it's talking about the conquests of Cain and the Promised Land, and the victories that Joshua was able to achieve. It says in Joshua 16, 1563, but the Jebusites, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, the people of Judah could not drive out. So the Jebusites dwell with the people of Judah at Jerusalem to this day, meaning to the time of the writing of the book of Judges. Joshua, I mean. Then, after that, in the time of the judges, 
the Israelites fought against Jerusalem and actually defeated it in Judges chapter 1, verse 8, where it says, And the men of Judah fought against Jerusalem and captured it, and struck it with the edge of the sword, and set the city on fire. However, even on that occasion, even when they were able to conquer the city, they were unable to actually occupy it. Or it goes on to say in Judges chapter 1, verse 21, but the people of Benjamin did not drive out the Jebusites who lived in Jerusalem. So the Jebusites have lived with the people of Benjamin in Jerusalem to this day. So up until this very moment, the Israelites had never, ever inhabited Jerusalem, although it sits right in the middle of the Promised Land, and they were able to occupy all the surrounding areas. But this fortified city, they were never, ever able to occupy. So now David comes against the city. And David was finally able to conquer the city of Jerusalem. Verse 7. Nevertheless, nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion. And notice how the city is described as a stronghold, a fortified city. It was a fortress. And as a result, it became known as David's city. Thus bringing honor and glory to David, verse 7. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, that is, the city of David. And again in verse 9, and David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. So David was proud of this conquest, and it became known as David's city. David actually grew greater and greater in occupying the city of Jerusalem. Not only did he conquer it, but he dwelt in it, verse 9. And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. David grew stronger and stronger by increasing the size and prominence of the city. It was already a fortress. It was already extremely fortified. And yet, David strengthened it still more. Verse 9, And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David and built the city all around from the Milo inward. And if you were in Pastor uh, Brandt's class uh, last Sunday, there were pictures of that and uh, representations of that city and its growth. And then lastly, David grew greater and greater with regard to the size of his family in Jerusalem. So we have his house growing greater in a physical sense, and now, now in this other sense, his house grew, that is the size of his family, verse 13. And David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. And these are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem, Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, Solomon, Ibhar, Elishua, Nepheg, Japhia, Elishama, Eliada, and Aphelet. We're going to say more about that later. But for now, as we think about a king, as we, we think about his prominence, uh, David's dynasty, if you will, seems to be getting larger and larger and larger. So now we want to look at the source of David's greatness. How was David able to do all of this? 
Well, the source of David's greatness was God's help. God's help. God, uh, David grew greater and greater as a result of God's help, verse 10. And David became greater and greater. Now here's the reason. For the Lord God of hosts was with him. The God of hosts, the God of armies, was with him. Uh, God, in his great strength, was with David. The Lord being with David certainly means that David did not do all this on his own. It was not just by his own abilities or strength. But what does it really mean when it says that the Lord was with David? How does that play out in a tangible, practical way? What is the manifestation of God's being with David look like? What can we anticipate when God says, I will be with thee, I will strengthen thee, I will uphold you with the right hand of my righteousness? What can we expect? Well, it's very instructive for us, as we look at this passage, that God uses very ordinary means for David to accomplish all that David accomplishes. God does not miraculously intervene. There are times in which God has intervened miraculously, certainly in helping the Israelites. We can think of the crossing of the Red Sea, miracle. We can think of the walls falling down at the playing of the trumpets, Jericho, a miracle. But on these occasions, there are no miraculous manifestations. Rather, they are just the simple, ordinary events of the day. God used ordinary means in assisting David in the conquest of Jerusalem. If you look at verse 8, it says, And David said on that day, that day being when they're coming up against Jerusalem, and he's saying that you can't come in there. On that day, David said, Whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul. Now, reading from Robert J. Vinoy's commentary, he writes, and I quote, Most interpreters have concluded that the term is a reference to the water supply for the stronghold, and that David's men made use of a tunnel that connected the fortress of Zion with the spring of Gihon outside the city walls in order to either enter the city itself or to cut off its water supply. And again, if you were in Pastor Brandt's Sunday school class, you saw that tunnel. You saw that connection that ran from Gihon into the city and how easily they could have entered through that tunnel. Now, I say how easily, remembering that they'd never been conquered before, but on this occasion they were. But it wasn't some miraculous revelation. I don't know how they became aware of that. I don't know how David came to think of it. But the point is, it was a very natural means by which they were able to penetrate this incredibly fortified city. He simply walked in a tunnel that already existed and provided a dramatic entranceway to the city. 
the attacking of the lame and the blind that's referred to in this verse has created a lot of angst for people, so I, I want to address it. Verse 6, it said, and the king and his men went to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, you will not come in here, but the blind and the lame will ward you off. You see, when, when David says that uh, he hates the lame and the blind, you must understand that in connection with verse 6. Uh, in verse 6, it's saying the, lie, the, blame, the lame and the blind are going to protect the city. David says, let's go take on these lame and blind people. All right? It's a sarcastic comment of they are deriding him, and he says, okay, sure, you can defend yourself with the lame and the blind. Let's go get these lame and blind people. And up through the tower they go, and obviously are taking on the army that was present within the walls of Jerusalem. Next, God used ordinary means in enabling David to live in the city and to build an impressive home there. Notice verse 9. It says, And David lived in the stronghold and called it the city of David. And David built the city all around from Milo and inward. Uh, that was quite an undertaking. You read in uh, the book of Chronicles, it gives us more information on how Joab is helpful in that and uh, is instrumental that process. But we also are given this information in verse 11. In Hiram, king of Tyre, okay, here's a foreign king, but a foreign king who looked favorably upon David and what David was doing. So Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to David and cedar trees and carpenters and masons and built David's house. So here is this foreign king who makes an alliance with David and provides him with the resources, provides him with the materials, provides him with the expertise, <laughs> provides David with everything he needs in order to build himself a palace. Again, this takes a period of time as you read about David's palace and, and where he lived. But the point is, here is God's helping David. Again, Money's not just falling out of the skies, but yet, in a very reasonable, ordinary way, but yet God working in an extraordinary way in the heart of this king to find favor in the eyes of David and to have this king just provide David with all the things necessary to build his house. This, again, takes a period of time. And I would point out that there's not a chronological progression here. I'm not getting to the Battle of the Philistines. We'll get to that next week. But that happens prior to the building of the house. We're not looking at chronological order. We're just looking at the big picture, growing greater and greater, taking the city, building a house for himself, all by God's enablement. Well, the first application I would make to this is the use of natural means does not lessen the truth that God was with David in helping David. The buys not natural means. And it's easy to lose sight of the activity of God 
when he uses ordinary means, because they're ordinary. And we can just think of being lucky or fortunate or deserving or whatever kind of adjective you want to put in there and fail to see that, that God is actually at work and God is doing great things. The point is that it was God all along that was helping David to grow greater and greater. Which brings us to the purpose of God's granting David greatness. Why was God doing this? Why was God enabling David to grow stronger? Well, verse 12. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel. He exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. Well, first, David was very much aware that God had helped David in obtaining greatness. For it says in verse 12 that David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel, and that he exalted his kingdom. The word that is translated as know here means to perceive, discern, see. It was obvious to David. David's eyes were open. David had a spiritual perception. He had a sensitivity. He knew that this wasn't just military prowess. He knew it wasn't just great strategy that they entered through this tunnel. He knew it wasn't just the goodness of this king's heart that caused him to supply David with all he needed to build the city. No, he knew. He knew that God was behind this. He knew that God was active. He knew that God had brought him through all these stages and steps. David knew that this kingship was a result of God's activity. God's having protected him from Saul. You can look back from the time of his youth, the time of his anointing, and David saw that the Lord was the one that was enabling him. The Lord was the one that was helping him. It was obvious that the Lord was his helper. Now that's very commendable. For all too often, even godly individuals fail to see that God is the enabler and the source of their success and greatness. All too often, we take credit for our own accomplishments. We give credit to our skills, we give credit to our abilities, we give credit to our intellect, uh, we may credit luck, we might thank our lucky stars, all kinds of things, and fail to recognize God's enablement. David did not make that mistake. David did not make that mistake. You see, I want to bring home some certain lessons and applications. And the first is there are temptations that are associated with greatness. The first that I've been mentioning is to think that our greatness came as a result of our own abilities. David did not fall victim to that. 
The second is to think that our greatness has nothing to do with an obligation to meet the needs of others. Verse 12. And David knew that the Lord had established him king over Israel. Then secondly, and (laughs) that he exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people Israel. What is very unique is that David realized that God had a view of making David king that was far greater than David himself. David knew, in verse 12, that this was not a reward for his faithfulness. This was not a reward for his godliness. This was not a reward for his goodness. This was the grace of God. And we're going to see that there are many things in David's life that should have disqualified even him from being king. God established him to be king. Because God had a bigger purpose and reason than to exalt David. The purpose for David to be king was given to us in the second half of verse 12 for the sake of his people Israel. God was making David greater in order to make the kingdom greater in order to make the people greater. It was a trickle-down effect. Last week, we spent our time talking about the fact that David was to be a shepherd king. And all that that entailed about caring and nurturing and governing the people. Now we find out that the purpose for David to be king was for the sake of the people, for their benefit. David was to be so different from Saul, who took, David was to give. David realized that God was using David as a conduit. In making David great, God intended to make David's kingdom great and in turn the people of that kingdom great. God was blessing David in order for David to be a blessing to others. That is a recurrent theme in the scriptures. Abraham, from the Abrahamic covenant, God says to Abraham, and you will be a blessing to all the families of the earth. God had blessed Abraham in order to be a blessing to all the families of the earth. I challenge you this morning that whatever blessings, whatever resources that you possess, that you see them not simply as a reward of my hard labor, not just the fruits of all my effort to be enjoyed by me and to do with whatever I want, but to actually consider that God gives gifts and God gives resources for the benefits of all his people. So we find in the New Testament that one has the gift of helps, one has the gift of teaching, so that the body would increase. So the church would be greater. So that as we use each of our gifts, 
Not to bring glory to ourselves, but to bring glory to God and a benefit to others. Then the whole body grows together and is fit, according to the book of Ephesians. So God blesses us in order that we might be a blessing to others. And if you can keep that in mind, then you can understand how this is not a reward. And it helps us to also understand what David does in verses 13 and 16. Pardon me, I didn't write those out, so I need to. Pardon me. Second Samuel five, reading at verse sixteen. Excuse me, verse 13. Verse 12 said, David knew that the Lord established him king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake of his people, Israel. And the ESV says, and David took more. You'll read in some translations it says, but David took more concubines. I actually think that's a better translation. In Hebrew, it's known as a walk consecutive. It just means it's a conjunction. It can be a continuation like and, or it can be a conversive like but. And I think but as many of the translations make it, is a better one. For it's a, it's a statement of contrast. Statement of contrast. David knew that God had established him as king, and exalted for the sake of his people, but David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. And then it lists those sons and daughters. Again, Dr. Benoit says this, and I think it's helpful. He says, and I quote, the birth of these many sons can be viewed in both a positive and a negative way. There is a sense in which numerous offspring can be viewed as a blessing of God and evidence of the increasing strength of David's royal household. But at the same time, the reader cannot help but be disturbed by David's apparent violation of the Deuteronomy law of the king that prohibited the king from taking many wives for himself, Deuteronomy 17, 17. And subsequent narratives describe the heartache that came to David in the aftermath of his marriage to Bathsheba, in connection with the behavior of his sons, Ammon, Absalom, and Adjaniah. This is going to be a problem. Just wait a few chapters. Uh, this is going to be a mess because of these concubines, because of these children. John Calvin, in his commentary, writes, and I quote, Here one sees how David's virtues were mixed with his vices, which should certainly be condemned. And above all, that this taking many wives is corruption of marriage, which God had chosen to consecrate his name. So where does this leave us? Well, first, it leaves us with this basic reality, and that is David is an enigma. 
David is an enigma. He's hard to understand. David has moments of great heights and shows great love for God, of which God says, he's a man after my own heart. There are so many reasons to put David on a pedestal, as it were. Think about battling Goliath, etc., etc. But this very same David acts in some extremely ungodly ways. You know the story. We're going to get there. Of how he commits adultery with Bathsheba. Tries to cover his tracks. That doesn't work. Ends up having her husband killed. Cover it up. And you, know, you look at the things that, that David does and you kind of scratch your head. Again, recognizing that grace is not a reward for faithfulness. We're going to look at Psalm 4 next week, where God says, How long will you turn my glory into shame? How long will you love vanity and seek after falsehood? Say, Love. David, David has his strengths and he has his weaknesses. He acts in great faith and he also acts in great disobedience. In his sinfulness, David's kingdom is going to come to a low estate, and David is going to have to flee the throne for a little while, and his family is going to be chasing him, and we'll get into all of that. But I think the great lesson for us is, here is an enigma of God's people. Here is the dangers of greatness. Here are those temptations that manifest itself when life starts looking pretty good and going easily. That is that we become inconsistent. That while there are times of great faithfulness, there are times of great unfaithfulness. While people who have walked with God and have developed a great reputation also commit some heinous sins and acts. And it can be extremely disillusioning. And you can even wonder sometimes, what if that person was saved? What if that person really knew the Lord? I, I, I wonder if that person was just a hypocrite all along, you know? Just pulling the wool over people's eyes. Well, we're blessed to have a a divine commentary on some of these things, such as David's life. God says, David is a man after my own heart. And then, we're brought up short and then say, well, you can be a man after God's own heart, and why can you fall? Adultery. Murder. We see a great warning, a great warning. 
First, don't become cynical. Don't become cynical. And don't become disillusioned. There are going to be people that you will put on pedestals. They're going to fall off those pedestals pretty hard. It doesn't mean that at the time they were a hypocrite. What it means is the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who could know it? We never, ever rise to the place where we can be callous or indifferent towards sin or our hearts. Well, it's easy to look at others, so let's look inwardly at ourselves. But what about ourselves? First, do we realize that any success we obtain is with the Lord's help? And I look back at my life and honestly say, wow, I'm thankful for what the Lord has done for me. Look at your business, look at your career, look at your family. Who do you credit? Yeah, God used ordinary means. Yes, he used your hard work. Yes, he brought people into your lives and all these things, but ultimately it's God. God works through ordinary means. Secondly, do we see the purpose of God blessing us? It's not a reward for us to simply lavish praise and materialistic things, etc., on us, but do we see that God has a bigger picture in what he's doing in each of our lives individually, and that is that he's working our, our lives individually to work in our lives collectively. So we can be a help to each other. So we can be an encouragement to each other. I can use my resources. I can use my talents. I can use my gifts to help others. David knew that God had made him king for the people of Israel's sake. And then thirdly, in our success, are we going to purpose? Are we going to resolve to remain consistent and faithful to the Lord? When money increases, when fame increases, when houses increase, as life gets better and better, will we remain faithful to the Lord? Will we be steadfast and not waver in our relationship to the Lord and others? Will we guard ourselves so that there are not inconsistencies in our lives that can disillusion others and bring a reproach against the Lord? As we think about our lives as being used to be a blessing of the Lord, can we also think about our failures, not just in terms of what do they mean to me personally, but what do my failures mean to my brothers and sisters in Christ? What does it mean to their children? 
how we can disillusion others. How we can be a detriment to their faith. Parents, grandparents. One of the reasons to be faithful is for your children and your grandchildren. And another reason to be faithful is my grandchildren and my children who look up to you. The importance of guarding our hearts. We all need to guard our hearts. The psalmist said in Psalm 19, but who can discern their own errors? Forgive my hidden faults. Keep your servant also from willful sins. May they not rule over me. Then I will be blameless, innocent of the great transgression. May the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, my strength and my redeemer. The psalmist says, if I guard my speech and if I guard my heart, I will be kept from the great transgression. It's when we grow lax in our speech and lax in our heart, our thoughts, not actions, simply our thoughts, that we start breaking down and opening ourselves up to the great transgression. David grew greater and greater by God's help. Greater for the people Israel's sake. May God grant us help and strength. May He grant us greatness, not just for ourselves, but for the benefit of others. Let's pray. Almighty God, we thank you for your word. And Lord, we pray. We pray. We are, we are grateful, Lord, for the way that you have worked in our lives, and may we give you the glory for whatever success we enjoy, whatever blessings we have, uh, whatever resources we possess. May we understand your enablement. May we understand your activity. May we not just chalk it up to ourselves. But may we truly understand that you have helped us And then, Lord, may we also understand that you have done it for your people's sake. And may we see ourselves as an avenue, a conduit of blessing to others. May we be a help. May we be an encouragement. May we be a strength. May we be a provider for those in need. And, Lord, help us as we grow greater and greater not to wander not to become spiritually arrogant. Lord, guard our hearts. Keep us from presumptuous sins. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.